0: And let's get started. Man, I, I know, I'm certain I will finish the section on union and diversity. Unity and diversity in light of union with Christ. And then we'll move on to the very last section in this uh, series on identity. What does union with Christ have to do? And what does it entail for Christian identity, sense of self-worth, dignity? And then we will enter our new series on denominations. What are not. What is the Orthodox Church? What is the Catholic Church? What's it mean to be a Lutheran? What does it mean to be a Methodist? What are, what are these things, you know? Um, and so we're going to finish. Uh, my hope is to almost finish up today, actually finish up next week with the very last bit of this, and then we're going to get into uh, the new material. But uh, let's pray, and then we will move on forward. Lord Jesus, we're thankful to be back together after an icy Sunday. Um, we thank you for keeping us, for protecting us. And as, as far as I'm aware, no one suffered any uh, kind of extraordinary loss because of the ice. Or do you think of uh, families who were affected, like uh, uh, the wards, the, the water challenges there? We pray um, that you would continue to work with the folks and get them out there and get that fixed so they get some water. And we pray. Um, that you would continue to be merciful as people get back into new rhythms and get back into school and all the rest of it. But Lord, most of all, we pray that you would be honored in what we do here today in the teaching and preaching of the word, that you would help us to understand theology in a way that leads to doxology, in a way that leads to worship and not just more information. And so we pray for grace over the next few minutes we have together in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, so last time we had a discussion about Unity and diversity in the body of Christ in light of union with Christ. Just to rehearse those takeaways in bullet form, that that the universal body of Christ is, uh, is characterized by every kind of diversity imaginable because Christ is redeeming people from every people and nation and tribe and tongue. Number one, the universal body of Christ is characterized by every kind of diversity imaginable. I guess I should say within the confines of Christian holiness. Number two, local bodies of Christ are expected to be diverse in the way that the New Testament outlines. And we gave some examples of those things. The New Testament expects local bodies to have different ages, people of different maturity levels, different offices, uh, different weaker and stronger members, single people, married people. There's a lot of diversity, and the New Testament expects that local churches will have, uh, uh, for the most part, uh, that kind of diversity in the local representation. Number three, seeking to actively make each local body more closely reflect the myriad of diversity within the universal body is generally not wise. There's nothing about the New Testament that would lead us to believe that, for example, every local church is going to be particular ethnically diverse or culturally diverse or even racially diverse because uh, in, in many cases that's not even possible. It's not even physically possible, and especially when you leave the Western world and you go to other places in the world, you go to churches where they're worshiping, and it's very homogenous, and it's not clear that anything is wrong with that, and that led to number four, what we should really focus on is making sure that local churches, local churches aren't adopting practices that squash diversity, right? That say, we don't want you here because of your fill-in-the-blank. That would make someone feel unwelcome who's a part of the body of Christ, but because of their, their background, their skin color, their whatever the case... Uh, our church practices, would their socioeconomic class even, would say, no, you don't really belong here. That's what we really need to be on guard for, okay? I want to make a couple more points before wrapping up the unity and diversity section and moving into identity. The first is that Scripture clarifies that shared unity with Christ does not at all imply that everyone possesses the same gifts— or even the same measures of faith, but rather the same identity, promises, and dignity or worth. Now we've already gone over this a little bit, we've talked about it, but if you would just very briefly turn with me to Romans chapter 12. This will be brief, and many of you are very familiar with this passage. I'm not going to do some in-depth exegesis, it's just enough to make the point here. But uh, this is after, this, this uh, concludes the parentheses of Romans 9 through 11, where Paul's explaining how uh, ethnic Israel fits into what he's laid out in Romans 1 through 8. And starting in verse 3, this is what we read. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. So everyone is to look at themselves sober-mindedly. Okay? And everyone... Everyone is included, uh, I'm sorry, everyone is inclined to think of themselves more highly than they ought to think. That's just the bottom line, folks. Everyone thinks they're a little bit smarter than they are, a little bit more competent than they actually are. That's true of me. That's true of you. That's true of everyone. That's why Paul says it right here, okay? So everyone can raise their hand in their heart for that one. Um, Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So it's not just, well, I'm going to think that I'm a lowly worm. It's no, no, no. Uh, and according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, the caliber of faith, the, the intensity of it, you might even say, the kind of faith. Um, for as in one body, we have many members. So now we're back. Here's the unity piece, right? Within the, in the body metaphor again. We have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many are one body in Christ. And here's where he specifically talks about the gifts. Okay? Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Okay? So everyone gets saving grace. Right? Everyone who is a Christian has saving grace. Everyone who is a Christian has the grace of being united to a risen Savior. That grace, not everyone is given the same grace, graciously given the same gifts though, okay? Not everyone is graciously given the same gifts. We are constituted differently. Gifts are given differently. Having having gifts, verse 6, that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then he rattles off a couple of them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy that they do so with cheerfulness. So we have this picture of we're all part of one body, but there are different members that make up the singular body. And so we should expect these differences We should expect differences in the body of Christ, even though we are all united to the same Christ. And so uh, union with Christ does not imply that everyone is gifted in the same way um, or that those gifted in the same way are equally strong in that gift. Okay. so let me use myself as an example. Um, Not everyone who is gifted to teach is equally gifted. I believe that I'm gifted to teach. But I'm not nearly as gifted, to use a very outrageous example, as someone like a Charles Spurgeon or a Jonathan Edwards. I'm not nearly as uh, gifted of a teacher as many of the people that you might go here listen to at a conference that you might attend with all the the, the big-name reform people. That's just not me. I don't have that degree of teaching uh, giftedness, okay? And that's okay. I have that gift but but I'm not one of those kinds of guys, okay? That doesn't mean I can't serve our church very well. That doesn't mean I don't know the Bible. It just means with regards to a teaching gift, you can possess a gift truly, but there can be other people who possess that gift truly. They just, there's a little more advanced in that gift than you are. And that's great. That's for the building up of the body of Christ. And I just want to ask a question before I move on. Why do you think recognizing the kind of degree of giftedness is kind of a... I'm not sure that's the best word, frankly. I couldn't come up with a better one. Um, why do you think that recognizing that there are degrees of giftedness even within the gifts, why do you think that's important? Or, and another way to think about that is if you forgot that, what, might, what mistakes might you make in your thinking or action? yeah okay good so you say okay what does a teacher look like it looks like and then fill in your conference preachers and your pipers and your spurgeons and your all the rest of them you're like well that's not that's definitely not me i need to go on my spiritual gifts list uh, test and like go to the next one you know yeah exactly so just perfect a a great example what else what else does the degree thing have to, to do with anything Yes, yeah, really 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 good. And what's your name? You're You're a what? Oh, Katie's mom. Oh, I can I can totally see there is one. So glad to have you this morning. Yes, you know, you know what I heard in seminary. I said you know, it was it was just such a uh, pointing out exactly the, the, the what you just said. I uh, heard a pastor say, "Do you know how to ruin Absolutely wreck uh, uh, a good, faithful, gifted young pastor. And there were all these, you know, answers given, oh, I put all this temptation in front of him, whatever, whatever. And the guy was like, no, trust me, here's what you do you put someone next to him in ministry who's just a little bit better than him at almost everything. And it will destroy him if he's not careful. He will either learn to mature and have humility very, very quickly, or it will wreck his soul to always be next to someone. Just a little bit better preacher than they are. Little bit better teacher. Seems to have a little bit better wisdom calls in those pastoral meetings. He says that will wreck somebody. Because you are either at that point required to adopt humility and acknowledge God's grace in other people, even those who have the same gift in you, Or it's going to wreck your soul. Okay? Any other other thoughts there? I think we don't uh, keep in mind, very closely in mind, that it is God that gives the gift, it is God that gives the measure. Yeah. Because if we lose sight of that, then we set a hierarchy. we said, well, then this is a better person. Sure. Right, and so it erases... Human yes, yes, good. So it, it erases the gracious giving of the gifts because it essentially then becomes, you know, the same question is, well, you know, why is this person better at baseball? Well, they took more cuts at the plate and they just practiced hard. It, 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 it takes the gracious nature of the gifts and the degrees of the gifts out of it, okay? So, union with Christ does not imply that everyone has the same gifts, very obviously, and that's for the better, but it also does not imply that people with the same gifts have equally are equally competent, even within that lane of gifting. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, um, additionally, union with Christ does not imply that everyone lives an equally sinful or holy life. Um, Union with Christ is not an eraser of spiritual maturity or spiritual differences. It, it, it isn't the great equalizer, okay, of holiness uh, or, or success in struggling against sin, okay? And, and I don't think many people would admit that explicitly, like, yeah, well, of course that's not the case. But sometimes you hear people use slogans that seem to paper over the fact that— um, Union with Christ doesn't imply that everyone is at the same stage; that everyone is equally holy, or equally mature, or equally wise, or something like that. You know, you'll hear, "Well, we're all sinners, just in need of a great Savior." You know, we're all righteous in Christ; we've all fallen short. And all, guess what? All those things are true. We have absolutely we have all fallen we have all fallen short, and we need a great Savior. Um, but sometimes, again, those things are used as flattenings slogans that undercuts the diversity that we expect in New Testament churches. Um, what, what do you think are some practical effects that has? What are some of the practical effects that has when people forget that, no, they're actually people who are, just you are just as justified as, right? Your inheritance in Christ is on lockdown just as much as theirs. It is just as gracious. And yet, there's no doubt that they live a holier life than you. That's just the bottom line. They are more mature than you. What, when you forget that and say, well, we're all really just the same. If you, just, if you get behind that person's life, you would see they're no different than me. What, what, what happens? What happens when you forget this? What are some of the practical effects it has? Okay, yeah, good. It's an excuse to stop pursuing holiness because this is going to be what it's going to be. Yeah. What else? Yeah, so I'm just not even going to try. I'm shooting for something that I can't even do. And so you just mail it in. Yes, yes, sir.
1: Qualifications for elders, qualifications
0: for DKs, you know, but that view comes into that conversation over all center for all. So why should you have to be a good thing? Yeah, great. Over that time, yeah, great great point there. Yeah. So elders, you know, what's what's been pointed out many times is when you look at the qualifications for elders besides some of the giftedness, and there's really only one or two. I mean, you have Uh, The ability to teach and then you having to, I would say that in the first century, managing your household actually took some skill, took some wisdom because of what it meant. Uh, But besides that, you know, the virtues of being an elder are really the same things that are required of the ordinary Christian when you look at it. It's just that elders are supposed to be a particularly good example of it. But if you flatten everything out, um, all of a sudden... You don't you don't have that anymore. It's just like, well, every, everyone just everyone needs grace. Everyone's up there dependent on Jesus. And so there almost is no way to even say, no, this particular person for this role or in the case of where we're not home about an elder. No, this particular woman, because she is further along. Um, let me tell you one other thing that I've seen this in front. I've seen this multiple times. Um, is that they can use the idea that we're all sinners to undercut the formative grace that is in the lives of individuals and really kind of be skeptical of people. you know. So they see someone who, to all appearances, frankly, just lives a lot, who has a much, uh, uh, is much further along and struggling against their sin, fighting against their sin, living a life of holiness to all appearances. And here's what they say. Ah, but it's just an appearance. If you really get to know them, You would find out that they have all of the same. They do all the same things I do, and this—it's all just a facade because we're all broken, and they just do a better job covering it. Okay, I've heard that many, many times, Um, and certainly there are some people who are pretending, and there are people who just put up facades, and there's people though, and you have to have the category for it who actually are, despite being united to the same Christ, further along. They're further along. They're more sanctified than you are. And that's okay. For the second point, I'm going to imagine if there was no one who was ahead of you, no one who lived a holier life than you, no one who was more sanctified, uh, progressively speaking, than you, it would mean that there was really no one else that you could ever look to to really imitate or emulate. There are just like you. There's no examples to follow. Be an example. Uh, We can all be examples equally in the same way to everybody. We're all sinners and we all have grace. So that's why why I wanted to point that out. Union with Christ does not imply that everyone lives an equally sinful or holy life. And let me just make one caveat. I'm not asking anybody to engage in some silly exercise where you look around the room or in the, you look around your head and see faces of this and that and you say, well, how do I stack up? You know, this person, where am I in the pecking order? If we lined everyone up, kind of would I be like in the, you know, I'd be like C range, like 70 to 100 range, or would I kind of be, average is average bad i'm not asking that okay i'm just saying everyone needs to be aware of the reality that god's give, god gives certain measures of faith he promises to progressively sanctify us and make us more like christ and insofar as we look at people who to all appearance seem that way and because of our own pride or insecurity say oh it's a fraud i bet it's not true we are really ripping down the grace of god in their lives to make ourselves feel better okay Finally, last thing I want to say here is this. If we are uniting around something other than Christ with whom we are united, then we are doing something that could go on just fine without the gospel. If you and I are uniting around something other than the Christ with whom we are united, then we're doing something that could go on just fine if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Okay? And so if if we're seeking to be faithful to Christ, then the reason for doing what we do um it it needs to align with the mission of the church. It needs to align with the mission of the church which is going to be saying no to being about many other good things. There are so many good things. All right? Um but let me ask this question, what happens, what, what would you call it? I have a particular word in mind, but not necessarily the right one. Uh, what do you become if, you're a, if you are uniting around good causes that aren't necessarily tied to the gospel? I mean, maybe they are, but it nece- has no real necessary tied to it at all whatsoever. What what, what what would you call that? A group of folks uniting around a good cause that doesn't really necessarily have anything to do with the gospel or Jesus. Secular what? what, what, what would you call a okay, yeah, yeah, fair enough. So you would call it a secular organization. So I was looking for a noun there. Okay, secular organization, yeah? Good, it would be a secular organization, perhaps, yeah? It would be some kind of movement. All right. What, what if it was a uh, one of these things that was happened to be Christian, but they spent all their time doing something that didn't require Jesus rising from the dead? What would you call that? They happened to be a Christian organization. But they spent their time doing things that didn't necessarily have to do with Christ rising from the dead. So, yeah, I'm trying to ask. I don't want to give the answer away, but I'm going to give away ways. I don't because I don't know a great way to say it. And this is the, this is the issue of the parachurch. This is always the issue of the parachurch. Well, and, I, and, and trust me, I have so much appreciation for parachurch organizations. JECA a parachurch organization. You know, this school parallels the church. It's an organization that helps uh, parents educate their children and doesn't pretend to that they're responsible for discipling them or anything like that. But it's a parachurch organization. The Rescue Mission is a parachurch organization. A Rescue One who works with sexual trafficking. Is is a, it, it, just to get getting people out of sexual trafficking is a uh, parachurch organization. Pregnancy Pregnancy Crisis Center is a parachurch organization. But here's the challenge, though, is that you can fight against sexual trafficking and you can be even pro-life and you can work for poverty relief, domestic violence assistance, food and shelter assistance. You can do all those things in a way that has nothing to do with Jesus. okay? and so it's not that the church shouldn't be about those things. Certainly they should. But if that's the glue that's holding everyone together, Right, that's my point here. If that's really the glue that's driving the church, we're the church who, and you kind of call it they're the they're called kind of the one-issue church. We're the church that fill in the blank. You know, this is what we do. This is what we do. And I know a couple of churches like that. I'm certainly not going to name their names, but you end up with a church who spends the the vast majority of their resources and their time and their energy and even pulpit exhortation on kind of like an issue or another issue. And all of a sudden, all all of the the finances start to this particular thing, this particular thing. And and if you were to ask somebody in the church, well, why are you doing this? It doesn't mean that they couldn't give some kind of something, somehow a stitching it back to Jesus. And I'm not saying that they couldn't tell a story there. But what ends up functionally driving it is, is not actually the gospel. The gospel's not in the driver's seat. Okay? A particular cause, a particular social cause is in the driver's seat. And in fact, if if the if that church fell apart, all those people could probably stay united, mobilized, doing the exact same thing. Okay? Does that make sense? I'm not knocking on the parachurch. Parachurch is absolutely, from the very beginning of church history, the parachurch is there. Okay? There's a reason people still say, oh yeah, yeah. where'd you have your surgery? Was it down at Baptist? Or was it St. Thomas? Oh, Because Christians from the very beginning have crushed parachurch ministry for the common good of the public to the glory of God, and particularly Christians, but also the common good. But... If a church finds itself shifting their energy and resources to an issue, then they are inching closer and closer to being a parachurch organization with a Christian mission statement and not the church. Yes? Okay. Like we're known as the church that serves the home. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there a healthy example of of that of that church being a, a I know, one issue thing, but like that's what we're, that's what we're Yeah, great question. So the great question. So the question, just to to say it again for the for the camera or the microphone, um, is is there is there such a thing as say you have a particular group of people who are well suited to serve a particular population uh, that has a certain need? Maybe it's the poor, maybe it's the sexually trafficked, maybe it's the whatever. Is there a way to do that without becoming, lapsing into parachurch? And the the answer is absolutely. In fact, I think that's the only good way in in most cases, not the only good way, that's probably a little extreme, and, and, and that is usually the best way to partner with parachurches where instead of being about a particular issue, you look who has got, you look out at your, your folks, right? Everyone looks at each other and say, "Who has God brought to us? Where do we have opportunities to influence? We have connections here, here, and here. Hey, that might be a good opportunity to do to serve in works of mercy and perhaps justice in this area while God provides this opportunity. Now how, how do you know the difference between that and then when it lapses into something that is um, problematic, like I was talking about. Two two ways, I think. Number one, the, the your pulpit presence, uh, your your kind of motivational energy in the church all starts to gear towards this thing over here. Okay? And it's not that, hey, because we are preaching the gospel and we're exalting Christ, listen to this opportunity that the Lord has given us. Wow, this is something to get excited about. That's the first thing. When When the thing that the, the opportunity that God has brought to you becomes the main thing instead of the opportunity. And the second thing is um, when, when those people or when that um, organization that you're partnering with or whatever, you know, however you have it structured in the, in the thought experiment or the example, either when those people move to a different church or that parachurch organization crumbles, if the church is still going, no, no, this is what we're about, this is still what we're about. We don't have that opportunity anymore. Those people with those gifts aren't here anymore. But we still need to find a way to stand this thing up. You know? Instead, what I would suggest you probably do is step back and say, okay, now we're in a different season. So now who do we have? Now who do we have? And now what can we do? And so you don't have to become the, uh, the issue for life church but, but when you have certain opportunities to serve in certain ways, absolutely we should press into those. We shouldn't make them about, that's what our church is about. Hey, if you're not serving in this way, you're probably going to feel disconnected from our church. That would be a sign of unhealth, lack of health, right? And again, once those people with those connections, they move on, that maybe in some cases they actually die, whatever the case may be, the church who says, no, no, who has, who has drank this for so long, says, no, 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 this is who we are. Do we have the resources and the people to do this anymore? No. Do we have the organizational framework outside to partner with anymore? No. But we still have to do it because this is what we've done. That's where I think it ends up being problematic. Instead, it's, no, who do we have now? What are the opportunities now? And now, what has the Lord brought to us? It's a very, it's a, so it's a, it's a people-centered organi- p- people, um, approach instead of an issue-centered approach or an organizational-centered approach. Okay, Does that make sense? Okay, great question. Anything else before we step into the next section? Okay, well, almost all of this section will more or less be pastoral application of the sum total of everything that we've discussed in light of union with Christ. It it could be when when you're ranking benefits of union with Christ, you know, you're engaging probably in a stupid exercise, honestly. But It might be that there is nothing more practical to union with Christ in this cultural moment. That's the key modifying preposition there. In this cultural moment than that of identity. That of identity. We are in a cultural moment where people are trying to figure out who they really are. And they are trying to be authentic to themselves, whatever that means. How have you seen this? What are some, very quickly, because I've got like four questions lined up and there's no way I'll make it through all. But what, how, how have you seen this? When I say people are, we're in a cultural moment where people are trying to kind of discover their identity. Uh, 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 discover who they really are, try to be authentic. What's one or two examples of what that might, might look like? What do you think? I'm sorry? Gender. Yeah, great. Gender is a great one. That's definitely the the low-hanging fruit one there, isn't it? Well done. Yes, gender. I'm a man. And then for for a variety of reasons, maybe I have a rapid onset gender dysphoria because all my friends are saying, no, you're actually a woman and that's the solution to your problems. Or I have some kind of gender dysphoria and now I'm asking to take, uh, you know, uh, 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 hormones and puberty blockers before I go through puberty that sorts out 99% of any kind of gender dysphoria anyways. Uh, yeah, because now I'm trying to, this is my true self. My true self is internal, and I'm trying to find it. I'm trying to be authentic to that. Otherwise, I'm living a what? Ah, oh, that's, what, that's what the line is, right? I can't live a lie anymore. Yeah, someone's trying to find themselves, okay? And however horribly misguided that is, and to be very clear, is horribly misguided. That's what people are trying to do, okay? What else? How else have you seen this? Yes. <laughs> Okay, yeah, oh, yeah excellent. Yeah, I, hadn't, I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, so just talk a little bit more about that, that part then, group identity. What is that? Yeah. Okay, great. And so as, sometimes this is, called, this is part of what goes into identity politics, which doesn't mean necessarily, necessarily anything about the bipartisan structure of American politics, but in terms of an identity, really politic meaning a body of people, and I understand who I am, not in light of being made in the image of God and my giftedness, or certainly not my DNA or my gender, but who, what groups I belong to. And in some cases, I can intersect groups, and that makes my identity even more precarious, perhaps. So perhaps I'm a a black, uh, uh, maybe I'm a, a black person, but I'm also a woman, and so now I've got a a woman, and, and, and those challenges might be different than someone who, than a black man or a white woman, you might have this intersection, you might say, you probably heard it called, this intersection of, of two groups that might be particularly oppressed, and now you've got a third kind of oppression altogether, and so now how do I see myself as one of those? That's who I am. I see myself as one of those. My personal identity is defined by the group. Someone looks at me; they can know what they need to know about me by knowing what group I fit into. Okay, excellent. Um, on the other hand, on the other hand, and I am moving on. I realize probably y'all have some more examples. I got to keep going though. On the other hand, we are in a culture that is seeking absolution. They are seeking forgiveness. They're seeking a way to deal with their shame. Everywhere you turn, you're doing something wrong. You're saying something wrong you're hurting somebody's feelings. You're excluding somebody. No matter if, if you're, it's your conscious intent or not, you are doing the very best you can, oh, you're still doing it wrong. And there are some people who really want to know like, and they're good folks. They're good folks. Like, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to just, is there any way out? Is there any way out of this besides just more, more, more? more, grovel more, cry more, give more, do more. Um, And that changes everything about how somebody sees themselves. Okay? It changes how somebody sees themselves. What they see themselves as is someone who is because of all these things. I I am a failure. I am this kind of horrible person. I am a racist. I am a misogynist. I'm xenophobic. I am all the rest of it. And that's not to say that that person doesn't have sinful tendencies in those areas. That's obviously the case in many cases, okay? Okay, that's obviously the case in in many cases, and it has been, just to be clear, for thousands of years, thousands of years in every single country and continent, people have been xenophobic, and people have been racist, and, and, and people have been... Uh, 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 misogynistic and all the rest. But what happens in this culture is when you get that, when that happens or you're accused of that, whether it actually happened or not, first of all, kind of the cancel guillotine comes down on you. (coughs) Canceled. You get canceled. Okay, you get canceled in your social circle. You get canceled with your friends. You get canceled at a silence at your job. And And then it goes two ways. You can kind of take one of two roads there, but the road that I'm talking about in this case is people are saying, well, how am I going to be good enough to make it up to society? How do I possibly convince people that I'm not this kind of a person? How do I possibly do it? Well, and, then the, and there's no answer. That's the thing. There's no answer. There's just more shame. There's just more guilt. There's just, in fact, for some people, just so awkwardly, it's, you know, the answer is to find out even how, how worse you are. How worse you are. You know, you thought you were just a this. Well, guess what? You're also a this. You're also a this. And, and you, you hear people take this and they go, what do I do with this? You have a whole unbelieving country saying, what am I supposed to go with this shame? and all, And they go to all the wrong people for the answers. And it doesn't do anything more than exhaust people and try to get people to atone for their own sin to make up for something. And it never works. They end up depressed, angry, sad, feeling like, oh, if I could just do more, that's what I should do. I should be doing more. If I did more, I would be more, I would kind of, you know, make up for my whatever it is. And so what I want to suggest is that union with Christ changes three fundamental things. It changes where we find our dignity and self-worth. It changes how we process failure and criticism our failures including times where we've been racist or misogynistic or xenophobic or whatever okay it changes how we process that and it changes how we process criticisms of that or any any other kind of criticism really and number 3 it changes the choices we make and the way we carry ourselves as those united to Jesus Christ so those three those three things that's how I want to close this whole series Is talking about those three things. The first, dignity and self-worth. Do I have that on a slide? You probably don't need a slide to remember that. I think I do. You know, I get up here talking and I forget about my slides. I'm sorry. There it is. <laughs> oh, I took that one off. Anyways, all right, here we are. All right, back to, back to here we are. So, because we have all been, just to recall, this should be well-traveled ground at this point, because we've all been crucified with Christ, raised with Christ, seated in the heavenly places with Jesus Christ, loved in Christ, and all the other in Christ's that we get our doctrine of union with Christ from, everything changes about our identity and sense of self-worth I want to remind us of two verses in particular one is Galatians 2.20 I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me the life I live in the body I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me that is a really amazing verse I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live which means I am what? dead I'm dead. It's not me living anymore. I mean, the language, you cannot just quote that and move on. It's like, what? That is an extreme statement. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the, uh, I memorized it long ago. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. He's a new creation. He's something new. Okay? That man or woman was something, and now they're a new creation waiting on new creation. You're a new creation waiting for a new creation. The old has passed away for this person. Behold, the new has come. The new has come. And so both of these suggest this incredibly radical discontinuity between the person I was and the person that I now am. Radical discontinuity that should, but it oftentimes doesn't, make a profound difference in our self perception and even in our behavior. So I want to give an illustration. Um, I, gave the, I gave this away to some on, on, on media this week. Of the business of um, Peter Parker becoming Spider-Man. Okay? Y'all remember Peter Parker becoming Spider-Man? I was going to wear a Spider-Man suit at of recommendation from someone for this illustration. But I was like, that's too seeker sensitive. I wouldn't even look good in a Spider-Man suit. No. Of course I'm joking. But here's the thing. Um, You have Peter Parker, and he's Peter Parker, and he's great. Okay. But something happens. And Peter Parker becomes Spider-Man. He becomes Spider-Man. Something happens. He becomes Spider-Man. But when he becomes Spider-Man, even though he has these new priorities, he's got these new abilities, he doesn't stop becoming Peter Parker right? He doesn't stop becoming Peter Parker. It didn't, it didn't change his personal identity, okay? His, uh, was it his aunt and uncle or his grandparents, whoever it was that's raising him, right? Uh, they're still, you know, he, he he's still their uh, uh, grandson or nephew. What is it, grandparents or aunt and uncle? Yeah. Uh, uncle, ben. uncle Of course, Uncle Ben. Marvel nerds, man. Hey, the football games are on this afternoon for everyone <laughs> no, okay. All right. I'm kidding. Ah, I love Marvel when I can remember the, the names of folks. Here's the thing. So he's still their uh, nephew, right? He's still Peter Parker. But here's a, here's a critical part. Here's a critical part. Becoming Spider-Man, taking on, you might say, Spider-Man. It didn't change the fact that he was still Peter Parker. What it did was it changed everything about how he thought of himself as Peter Parker. And how he acted as Peter Parker. And because he knew that he had an other, an, another identity, even when he was Peter Parker, the, the nerdy looking reporter or whatever he is, he all of a sudden knew that he, 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 he carried himself differently. Okay? He acted differently. He knew that he was Peter Parker, but he knew that there was something more. Why why are you laughing at me? Is he not a reporter? Photographer? Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I need to clear these Lord of the Rings and Marvel (laughs) illustrations of people before I get up here and give these. He works for the Daily Bugle for, for J. Jonah Jameson. So there it is. Okay, but but my point is this. In taking on something new, it doesn't change his personal identity in the sense that he's still Peter Parker, but it radically changes how he thinks about his own identity. And the same thing is true with union with Christ. There is something that we have taken on. We have been united to something. It gives us, frankly, it doesn't give us superpowers like Spider-Man sense. We're not saying away web around the congregation, but we do have new abilities. We have a transformed heart. We have an di- ability to love differently. We have an ability to forgive differently. We have different privileges. We have different responsibilities, just like Peter Parker. So, so when even as he's Peter Parker, he understands that he has a new set of responsibilities relative to the giftedness that he particularly has been given, relative to this other identity that he has taken on. It doesn't erase who he is, but it changes how he carries himself as Peter Parker. Okay. All right, um, so let's see. Yeah. All right. So next time we will finish up this the the pastoral application here of union with Christ and identity. Just so so important. Could not leave this particular section out. Um, Certainly hope some of this discussion was helpful. Uh, Let's uh, right here at 9:45. So let's go ahead and stop here and pray together. God, we are so thankful to be united with a Christ. That has risen from the dead, so much so that we can say that we were crucified with him, then we no longer live anymore. Christ, he lives in us, he lives through us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us ponder that truth, ponder that reality, and how it affects how we carry ourselves, and our dignity, and our sense of self worth, and how we respond to criticism, and how we respond to failure. Lord, shape us and mold us into what we have already been declared to be. We pray for your grace, and we pray that you would bless us in our next hour of worship together. In the name of Jesus, amen.